get your perspectives, not only understanding about the really cool stuff that you do at NQ Medical, but um, also being able to share the learnings, the best practices, some of the questions associated, especially right now with COVID-19 and how companies are majorly pivoting and rethinking their business models and, and really forging ahead, I think, in a really great high opportunity space. But some people might be challenged because of um, dry, you know, funding that might be drying up or there's going to be a little bit more um, uh, people kind of pulling back a little bit. And so we're kind of in this new environment. And so uh, based on your background and sort of some of the best practices, just wanted to find out a little bit about that um, so we can plan some of the questions for the, the interview that I, I will be doing with you. Sure. I mean, I'll just start by saying that um, the whole world has changed, and I don't think it's going to go back, meaning we have been petitioning forever, I'm taking decades, to bring telemedicine, telemetry, and remote patient monitoring to the fore. Uh, and the barriers were always in the past clinician adoption, patient adoption, and uh, reimbursement. Yeah. All of that has been trial by fire, uh, kind of um, uh, forced forward, where clinicians have to use it, Okay, whether they like it or not, patients are screaming for it, and, it's, and right now there's not enough capacity. And uh, payers are saying, okay, 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 uh, government will lead, they'll pay. Um, you know, we will reimburse at the same rate as a live meeting. Now, could they go back on that post-COVID? Maybe. I think they'd have a hard time doing it. Yeah, I totally agree. I to think I led the bandwagon in some cases. <laughs> uh, I think the companies that jump on the bandwagon, uh, I'm thinking way back when uh, I ran a medical education company. And that was all taking off. And then every ad agency on the planet who never worked in healthcare saw all the money and started jumping on the bandwagon. Uh, so they used, to, they used to work for banks, and then they wanted to work for hospitals. So I think, um, you know, a true entrepreneur takes risk where no man is going to be, or woman has going to be born. So what made you so much smarter than everybody? Why? Did oh. you, like, so here's the Wayne Gretzky analogy. How did you end up knowing where to go before the puck went there? Well, okay, first of all, you, you have to recognize that you're not nowhere near as smart as anybody. So you have to you have to have a thirst for knowledge. And and I, I'm a vast consumer of information. I mean, I, I ten hours a day I, I read everything and I look ahead and I hear other people who are far smarter than me make prognostications and sometimes I agree with them, sometimes I don't. Um, and then you just have to immerse yourself in it. So it's really more of experiential than it is cerebral. Interesting. I love that thought. That is actually something to really think about. Um, and so how do you, so how, what is your interest? I mean, who are the people that you follow? Are these podcasts, audiobooks, YouTubers? What's, what's your, do you have a funnel or is it just whatever? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a LinkedIn slave. I mean, I, the first thing I look at in the morning is my LinkedIn feed uh, because I, I get to pick and choose who's feeding me. And you know, of course I read the, you know some media, but that's, you know, fake news. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, so I, I really depend on, um, on LinkedIn primarily, and then uh, I think uh, there are certain people who I do uh, follow. Excuse me, not follow. I'll take certain entities and I'll I'll take their uh, brochures or their feeds. You know, more of a less of a condensed version, more of a, a longer version. That um, when I take have time, I pick it up and start reading it. Very cool. So I love what you do at NQ Medical. I mean, if you were just to highlight what what it is that you do, how would you define if somebody said, you know, what is it that, that NQ Medical does? Yeah, there's so many ways to answer that. <laughs> um, uh, you know, you, right, the 90-second elevator pitch, which I certainly have done many times over. 
Um, well, we're a computational biomarker for neurodegenerative disease. So there's your five-second one. Uh, if I had a minute, I would say that we can um, detect uh, disease early, track disease progression in the real world, and show the impact of therapy for a, a vast variety of, of neurodegenerative diseases. But if I really want to drill down on it, I have to throw mud at some of my competitors. Um, and, and I'm talking like Apple. Um, I, I spent two years working on an NIH grant studying adherence. You know, why do people not take their medicine? Why they don't, they don't pay attention to the doctor's orders? Why they don't exercise? Why they don't drink enough water? And, you know, there's they, like 63 reasons, literally 63 reasons why people don't, don't, don't adhere. And even if I said, okay, if uh, Natalie, if you don't take this pill, you'll die tomorrow. Only 50-50 chance you'll take it. So as I began to look at the digital health community, I saw lots of proprietary devices. So that means I have to buy a device to participate. That's a barrier to adherence. And then I started looking at all these apps out there, and I said, okay, all these task-based apps that require me to be adherent in them, meaning I feel them today. Did you take your pill? Oh, oh, can you do this radio scale? I mean, the fatigue factor is enormous. So um, I, I basically said, you know what? Uh, we touch devices every day. Um, you're, uh, we, I wake up in the morning, I turn off my alarm clock, I pick up my smartphone, I yell out to Alexa, I start my Keurig coffee machine, I shave in front of a mirror, I drive my computer on wheels, I go to work and bang on laptops, desktops, phones, tablets all day, come home, pick up my uh, television remote control, and I repeat next day. So I've just touched a huge amount of devices that are collecting data on me, and I'm, I'm giving it data. Mm. So I, I, we believe that NQ is inherent, adherent in you. You don't have to be adherent in us. So you download it and you forget it. You download it to your device, no matter which one it is, and um, unless you're interested in seeing a report, you never look at it again. You just mm. live your life. And we don't care what you do. If you're on uh, video streaming, playing video games, if I'm on LinkedIn or somebody's typing letters to their grandma, it doesn't make any difference. As long as their finger is touching the keyboard or the screen. That's all that counts. And so from there, uh, you know, we've got six years worth of clinical data, uh, plus a pending FDA clearance. Um, we can diagnose motor degeneration and cognition degeneration, which opens up for Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, mild cognitive impairment, ALS, multiple sclerosis, concussion. Those are just the ones we've started. We're having conversations about chemo brain, okay, that temporary dementia, um, arthritis, okay, and immunology, stroke. Uh, carpal tunnel syndrome, the brain-finger connection is so powerful and so revealing that we only need 90 seconds to give you a baseline score. So in 90 seconds, I can detect, uh, stage, and then, you know, from there, we can track um, how you proceed. So it's, to me, it's keep us simple, stupid on the front end with enormous artificial intelligence uh, complexity in the back end. So is the company making money right now? And if not, how did, like, are you funded right now? Kind of what's the current business model and what's the projected model? Okay. So another, another not jump on the bandwagon. Um, I took a look at the digital health landscape and I said, okay, all these digital health companies are saying, well, we'll get patients to pay for it. We'll get doctors to pay for it. We'll get health systems to pay for it. We'll get payers to pay for it. I'm looking at myself, are you smoking dope? None of those people are going to pay for it. So we said, based on my experience around my companies, I said, you know what? You know who will pay? 
pharma and medical device companies. So we rolled out our pre-FDA cleared device to support clinical trials. Remote recruitment of patients, tracking real-world data, and more importantly, showing the impact of therapy at the earliest possible moment. And I did a million dollars in revenue last year, $900,000 to be specific, in revenue last year, my first year of operations. And that's because you paired up with pharma or with uh, clinical research organizations? Oh, uh, no. Well, okay, good question, because when we started the company, I said, oh, these CROs, they'll love this. Like, literally within the first month, 2016, when we started, we spent two years figuring out, what do we do with this? Who's going to buy it? Who, how much are they going to pay? Before we ever launched it, two years. So uh, one of the first places I went to was the CRO. And they, they went like this. I mean, I'm talking like quintiles and PowerXL, all the big guys. They said, uh, hey, uh, this is really cool. This is really nice. We would never buy this. I said, oh, really? He goes, yeah. However, if a drug company bought it and told us to use it, we'd use it. But we would never buy it. And then they said something very interesting. They said, um, however, we would pay you anything to have access to the people, to users. Because that, that's, you know, what's the longest short in any clinical trial? Recruitment. Mm -hmm. and, and if we could find, if we could I detect, stage, <laughs> and talk about uh, this population of, of stratified patients, they, they, you just solve their problem. So you got investment, but not from the typical way that some of the startups that we're going to be talking to in this ecosystem, which is venture capital, you know, and again, you're talking about the same thing, go to insurance companies and everybody's kind of looking there. You went directly to pharma. Well, my partner and I funded it on our own for two years. Okay. Then we uh, got our first customer. Then we did a seed round. It was a priced round, a small, small seed round in 2000, uh, October, November, 2018. Then we generated, you know, nine hundred thousand uh, dollars. Then we went out and did a convertible note. Uh, we, we, you know, we're very precious owners of our equity, so we did a convertible note uh, that was primarily a bunch of angels and one institutional investor. We had an institutional investor that we that was so excited about what we were doing, we wouldn't let them buy equity, but they came in with a significant amount of money, and, and we just closed it in February, pre-COVID. I mean, I can't even imagine if we waited another month. Everybody would have ran the other direction because our, our, we had projected revenues this year of four and a half million dollars, and uh, I, I think more than half of it is at, at risk. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's a really, really tough one. Um, and so I guess the other question is just moving forward. So you are, would you be considered what they call a digital prescriptive? Then is that what you're doing? Is is putting this through clinical trials? So you're waiting for an FDA clearance, or how yeah. does how well, would you I, label it? Are you familiar with uh, this, the Digital Health Alliance has done a great job of defining what is digital health, what is digital medicine, what is digital therapeutic? Have you seen that? No, I haven't. Okay, I can send you the. It's just a, yeah, no, that would be really helpful. Yeah, um, so digital health is you know all the health attainment. You know, Fitbit is uh, digital health. Uh, digital medicine is truly something that's uh, maybe doing, uh, providing data for diagnosis. Mm -hmm. uh, and then digital therapeutic is a standalone therapeutic without drug, with or without drug, but in many cases without drug. Um, so we're kind of in between digital medicine and digital therapeutic. If you look at the definition of digital therapeutic, um, you would very easily understand why most approved digital therapeutics really are cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. Because that's the only way you can really influence anything. You can't influence physiology with a digital therapeutic. 
So um, uh, we are certainly a digital diagnostic in digital medicine. And, but, but if you read the definition of digital therapeutic, it's really any digital device slash uh, software slash solution that has an impact on a patient outcome. So, for example, there's a company out there that, very um, you know, brilliant concept. It's so simple. Uh, they monitor your blood pressure, and it lets you know when it's getting too high. So, theoretically, that would yield a good outcome, just knowing that your blood pressure is in the right range. You know, is it is it rocket science? Nope. It's digital therapeutic. So, for us, if we are if we are showing uh, the impact of therapy and how the disease is progression progressing, and that's information that the doctor doesn't have. The man is a patient, theoretically that would have a positive impact on the outcome, and you could argue it's a digital therapeutic. Mm. That being said, um, one of the early things that influenced our direction to date, and I think you'll appreciate this East Coast, West Coast story, U.S. East Coast, West Coast. So we went to uh, investors uh, for our first round. We were kind of exploring, should we raise money or not? We got all these East Coast-based, Boston, Cambridge-based uh, investors, and we say, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do clinical trials, we're going to get FDA clearance, we're going to educate doctors, and then we'll promote it to patients. You know, everybody's in Boston, like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Fly out to Silicon Valley, sit down with these major, you know, players like Andreessen Horowitz and, and the like, um, and General Catalyst, and we tell them the same story. They go, screw the FDA, who cares about evidence? We're going to put an ad in the Super Bowl, get 10 million people to download this thing, and we're about the rest later. So my background's been in healthcare forever, and I was like, how's that going to work? So 10 million people are using it, and somebody goes to see their doctor and says, hey, doc, look at this really cool thing I've done. Look at my data. And the doctor goes, I've never seen that before. Get out of here. That's voodoo medicine. You know, I don't want to talk about it. I mean, you can't, I mean, you have a hard time talking to a doctor about legitimate data, never mind illegitimate data. So that's, that's what shaped our destiny. You know, to be a, a truly recognized, approved uh, digital intervention. Uh, and so there's, so our credibility carries. Very nice. And, and in those early stages, as you've been developing the company, if you could speak to that earlier self, what would be some of the lessons learned um, that you know today that you, it could have changed the direction of where you are today? Is there any smart thoughts here? Yeah. Well, okay, it's my fifth company. The first three went pretty well. The fourth one was an absolute abysmal disaster failure. So all those learnings I carry forward. So I avoided a lot of those same errors. But for this company, um, I, I think you cannot excel. Healthcare in general is very, very slow and conservative. And I think that's why a lot of the big tech companies struggle. It takes too long. Um, if you, in many instances, I've tried to accelerate the, the, the necessary milestones, you can't do it. Uh, once you start accelerating it, the market will push you back. You know, okay, this is great, great concept. You don't have enough evidence. Oh, you've got plenty of evidence. You don't have the regulatory clearance. Push you back, push you back. Um, you know, okay, now you're regulatory clearance. You don't have enough doctors using it. You know, you don't have enough patients using it. So... You, you can't force that to go any faster. And I think that's one of the big things a lot of digital health companies just absolutely fail at. It's trying to push it too quickly, you're saying. Yeah, and the second one, probably more important than the first one, uh, you need multiple sources of revenue. 
Interesting. So while, while we're on the topic about customer acquisition and what have you, um, what, what could you recommend to people in that process? So you've obviously niched it with pharma, you know, digital tech, the people who actually have uh, the wherewithal and the ability and the financial means to be able to back something like this. So how did you, how did you go about getting and acquiring these customers? And is it really just based on your marketing know-how? What were some of those nuggets that you, you sure. got to before I go there, let me just say, when I say multiple avenues of revenue, I'm not talking about multiple customers. Okay. About multiple, we have four distinct revenue sources. Some, some would argue five. So pre-FDA clearance, we're, we're getting paid to support clinical trials. Mm. As we have our FDA clearance with these same customers in the same contracts, we call it commercial escalation, we move to the digital therapeutic drug plus app. And that's probably the largest revenue opportunity. From, uh, simultaneously, we're pursuing uh, the VA and the Veterans Administration and other payers to make sure we can take advantage of these brand-new remote patient monitoring codes. Simultaneously, we're building out our user base so we can sell that data for drug discovery and population health. And then the fifth one, which will come to bear, when you uh, ask a pharma company why would they invest in digital health, They'll tell you a couple of things. Oh, it's the right thing to do. Uh, we're, we have a patient engagement strategy. Um, we want to help doctors better use our product. Um, you know, all, all good things. Uh, however, let me tell you the real reason. <laughs> all of our sponsors uh, currently have best-in-class products, which means, you know, they're making billions. They're all getting near the end of their patent life like two, three years towards. So typically, what, what does a drug company do? They reformulate, so now you're drug XL. They add a second compound, so now you're a, mono, a, du, uh, a dual therapy. Adding a digital component to your compound is a patent-extending event. Right. I'm making $10 billion a year on a drug. I can get one more year of patent extension, $10 billion. Right, really, really interesting. Interesting yeah. process and protocol. So, um, in this COVID nineteen situation, are you finding that you're having your company is having to repivot? Is there anything that you're looking at in the world differently for your company? Yeah, um, and I think we're well positioned. Uh, earlier, I mentioned the world's you know going to change forever. Um, I look at it as having like level one, two, and three. So, level one, I need respirators and masks. Right? I mean, not me, but the market. They want masks and respirators, right, and, and a cure and an immunization plan. Level two, there's a lot of people who don't have COVID, but they have other illnesses. They have to be treated. They can't leave their house. They can't come to the doctor's office. How, how are you going to care for these patients? Certainly, yes, you can institute telemedicine like we're doing now, and the doctor can see you, but they can't take your pulse. They can't feel your heartbeat. They can't check your breathing. So you're going to need digital tools in the home to give all that telemetry information to support the live visit. So we sit there. We provide telemetry information on the status of the Parkinson's Alzheimer's patient relative to their therapy and relative to the disease progression. The third category is, of course, life after COVID. And, 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 and building um, so that if this ever happens again, the infrastructure is in place so that we're not panicked. And, and patients are already enrolled uh, in, with their provider and to tell telemedicine and, and telemetry. Uh, payers already have approved it and so on. So it'll get broader. So I think we're in category two 
and and coming out of this, uh, if I had the FDA clearance right now, I'd be almost in category one. And I can't really do anything right now until, you know, towards the end of this year. Got it. And you, we were touching on this a little bit, and I thought it was really interesting that basically you're built in and everything you touch is going to give is going to give data somewhere. Mm-hmm. Has anybody kind of approached you about some of the bioethics around this, around the concept of concerns around generalized surveillance and what does the world look like with that? How do you respond to it? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question, and it's probably one of the three most common questions that get asked. So I first I start by saying our current application doesn't look at what you type or what you touch on a touchscreen. We look at how you do it. So we don't collect characters. We don't collect words. We don't collect sites visited. We don't collect apps that are – it's all uh, just the mechanics of hold time, flight time, and pressure, and, and things like that. Um, so our data is naturally encrypted. And, and in the current environment now, we never have the patient's ID. That stays with the the medical institution. All we get is the number. So Natalie Yadin is D slash seven six five. That's all we know. We know anything about that's about you. We're collecting your data. We feed it back up to the system, and, and your host, or whoever owns your medical data, or have that, that's where it goes. Okay. Um, so that's level one. Then I get a little sly and I say, you know what? Privacy doesn't exist. <laughs> Google and Apple know everything about you, and you have no idea. It does not exist. They know things about you before you even know them. Like they know tomorrow we even go shopping. I totally agree with you. I, that's a whole other discussion. That's right. That's right. So, so 